You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dearest Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the blessings of these past couple of days to learn more about this cosmic conflict, this great controversy, and to just be more aware of the enemy, his attacks, but most importantly, God, of your solutions. And so God, as we talk today about some deeper issues, um, one of the biggest barriers to engaging in your work and serving you and loving you and worshiping you, we pray that you may continue to keep our hearts open to your spirit and that we can not only hear these words, but be doers of the words and to live transformed lives. So please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today is the last seminar in our series, The Great Mind Controversy. Our first seminar was entitled Knowing the Time, and based off of our theme text of Romans 13, 11, and we talked about the mental health crisis. Part of knowing the time is understanding the crisis that we're living in. We then talked in our second seminar, Brainwashed, about the different attacks that the enemy has, but specifically on our frontal lobe. And then we talked yesterday, does anyone remember yesterday's title? Freedom Through Captivity, based off of 2 Corinthians 10.5 that talks about keeping every thought to the obedience of Christ, captive to the obedience of Christ. And we talked about, yes, behaviors the first um, seminar, but then emotions and thoughts, and again, the importance of taking every thought captive. Because our thoughts, right, remember, we can be transformed by the renewing of our thoughts. As a man thinks, so is he, right? And the crucial aspect of our thoughts. So we need to take every thought captive. Today's title is Redeeming the Time. So now that we're aware of knowing the time that we're living in, we want to conclude our series by talking about, well, how do we redeem the time? We talked about already some strategies, but there's one main barrier that gets in the way of us redeeming the time. And so this is our theme verse, but then in addition to knowing the time, Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So we know the time we're living in, we know that the days are evil, but we want to learn how we can redeem the time, how we can be a part of God's work in redeeming the time. So we see here the triangle again, our thoughts, our behaviors, and our emotions or feelings. And many of you, I, I saw someone um, out and about on campus and they said, oh, I'm already changing things. And I'm like, praise God, that's wonderful. Now, typically we do this over the course of many, many months with, with a client. We go through behaviors, we go through thoughts, we go through emotions, and change has begun, but you might say, I'm still maybe struggling with some addictive behaviors. Maybe you've made some changes and you're saying, well, I still struggle with having negative, strong thoughts. Or maybe you say, I'm still having those strong emotions that I can't seem to control. So you may make some changes, but if you notice you're still struggling, you'll notice that it's because you've changed, you kind of trim the branches of the tree, maybe you've plucked the fruit, but you haven't addressed the roots. And so when we talk about redeeming the time, a lot of us start making changes in our lives, but we still struggle because we haven't identified the roots. Whenever I see a, a client who has been in therapy for many, many years, and then comes to see me, it's often because they made some changes, but they never worked on the roots. Now, I can't read minds. Some people think that I can as a psychologist, but I'm guessing some of you are thinking, well, what are the roots, right? I love this quote. It says, if you want to change the fruits, you will first have to change the roots. If you want to change the visible, you must first change the invisible. But many of us, especially in the church, we like to change the visible, right? Because when I go to church on Sabbath, I say, happy Sabbath, I smile, and people don't know the deep hurt 
inside. But we need to change the invisible in order to change the visible. So the question is, what are these roots? We'll talk about today, what are these roots? So look again at the top of the tree, but what is feeding these thoughts, behaviors, and feelings? It's what we call in cognitive behavioral therapy, core beliefs. So what are core beliefs? Core beliefs are deeply held, rigid beliefs about ourselves, about others, about God, about the world, right? Core beliefs. This is not just a one-time thought. This is how you view yourself or others. And they're often learned and developed over time from repeated and unique personal experiences. Now, they typically start in childhood, but it can develop later on in life. So let me give you an example. I had a patient who's a veteran, and he had a wonderful childhood. Wonderful. You would say, you know, he's struggling with addictions, and how did that happen? Well, he was introduced to a substance one day. He decided to take it, became addicted, and through the addiction, he started developing beliefs. I'm a horrible father. I'm nobody, right? So it can develop later on in life, but typically it starts in childhood. Information that contradicts your core beliefs are often ignored, right? We call it confirmation bias. So it, when I bought a Corolla, um, I started seeing Corollas everywhere. Has that happened to you? Because our brain starts looking for information to confirm our beliefs. So if I believe, oh, nobody loves me, I'll start highlighting, oh, well, that person did that because they don't love me. So core beliefs are so deeply rooted that we often look for information that confirms it or deny information that contradicts it. Core beliefs tend to be rigid and long-standing, and often people don't change them at all. However, they can be changed. So here are some examples. This is not a comprehensive list, uh, but here are some examples. For self, I am not good enough. I am unlovable. I'm stupid. I'm worthless. I'm powerless, imperfect, bad, ugly, slow. I'm a failure. For others, people will hurt me, right? This is a lens in which we see people. People are, are untrustworthy. People are out to get me. People are controlling. Sometimes this is even more specific of like, oh, all men are untrustworthy, or all men are scumbags. What's interesting is you see a lot of media also feeding these core beliefs. The world, the world is unsafe, scary, unfair. The veterans that I counseled with, often when they came back from combat, they would have these types of core beliefs about the world, right? They had this intense experience time and time again that really, was the world dangerous when they were in war time? Yes, but then they took those beliefs and they continued to maintain them here when they got back. Um, the future, many times if you've been depressed for a long time, you struggled a long time, you might say the future is hopeless, dark or uncertain. And then a really core, core belief is how we view God. And this core belief is often one that secular psychologists don't address. But if you really think about it, how you view God will impact every other core belief. And many of us might say, oh, well, yeah, I love God. But deep down under the surface where we can't see, we have these perceptions of God. And an example of that might be, I think more and more people are aware of this, is often our beliefs about God are formed in how we view our parents, right? So a lot of women, if they didn't have a father figure, often they start attributing that to God, right? Or even men. Um, a lot of, unfortunately, pastors' kids, also, if they have a negative experience, they attribute what happens in the church to God. This is how our core beliefs are shaped. So an example of this would be core beliefs are like sunglasses. So if I were to put on blue-colored shades, how would I see the world? Is the world really blue? But it's blue to me. Right? Blue is my reality, because I see everything blue. If I put on pink-colored glasses, how would I see the world? Pink. And so core beliefs are like sunglasses that influence the way that we perceive the world and how we interpret the world. We allow them to define who we are and how we live our lives. So let's look at some examples here. 
So here is a situation. We see two different people, same situation, but different core beliefs. So Michelle and Audrey both call a friend who does not answer the phone. So you can start thinking about if you want to start assessing what your core beliefs are. If you've called someone and they don't answer, what's your first thought? Michelle has the belief, I'm unlovable. And because she has those sunglasses, she interprets that her friend doesn't answer because my friend didn't answer the phone because she doesn't like me. Now, what are other possibilities? She's busy. She didn't hear the phone. Battery was dead. There's a joke with if you're you know, liking someone and you're texting them and they haven't texted back for hours, they're like, well, what if they read your text, they were so excited and they passed out? <laughs> right? There are different ways that you can interpret things, but depending on your core belief, you're going to interpret it differently. Now, Audrey, same exact situation, but different core belief. She, she's valuable. And therefore, she thinks, oh, my friend didn't answer the phone because she's busy, right? I left a voicemail, she'll call back. If not, I'll call her again tomorrow. Now, what's so fascinating about core beliefs is that it even helps, it even gets in the way of interpreting a good experience. So we talked about someone not answering, but let's think about, well, what happens if somebody does answer? So here again, I'm unlovable. Now, they talk on the phone and they have a nice conversation. And she, she thinks, Michelle thinks, my friend is really nice to put up with me. She's probably so annoyed by my phone calls, I should try not to bother her so much. Do you see how problematic these core beliefs are? Even a positive experience you can twist because your root is telling you, I'm unlovable. I, I do telehealth um, sessions when I'm here so that um, I can still work and see my clients. And yet, just yesterday, I have a, a client who has this belief, I'm unlovable, and she's isolating herself, right? That's a behavior, but what's feeding the behavior? She thinks she's unlovable. So, oh, I don't want to call my sister, even though the sister, she's really close with her sister, because even, oh, I'm a burden to my sister, right? So core beliefs shape how we view um, our world. So let's talk about how to change our core beliefs. Now, again, this process, not just of cognitive behavioral therapy, but even specifically core beliefs. Think about it. For those of you who garden, um, or even just don't garden, but just imagine it, is it easy to pull up a root? A deep, deep root that have been growing over years? <laughs> Some people are like, no, right? So it's not going to be an easy process also for yourself. It can be done, but it takes hard, diligent work. So changing your core beliefs. Here are some steps that will go through each step. Identifying your core beliefs, reflecting on the impact that they've had, disputing them, right? Challenging them, wrestling them with them. Exploration, trying to explore what other core beliefs might I want to adopt. And then the final step of actual adoption. So we'll go through each one. So the first step, identification. Some of you may already know some of your core beliefs. Maybe you saw that list and you're like, I know that I think that I'm worthless. Or you say, oh, I see that and I know that I have a problem with trusting people. So some of you may already be aware. Others may still be struggling in identifying them. So step, kind of sub-step one, is you need to have an open and honest attitude. You can't change what you're not aware of. You can't change what you're not willing to be aware of. Sometimes we're so scared of revealing the roots, right? It's like we feel exposed and naked. I don't wanna say out loud, right? Maybe I think it, but to say I believe I'm worthless, that's scary. So you need to have an open and honest attitude, no matter how negative or shaming the beliefs might be. So that's the first sub-step. The second sub-step is reflect on the work you've maybe already done with your behaviors, your feelings, and your thoughts. So you, what you can do is start mapping out what are the behaviors I struggle with. Oh, okay, I struggle with screen time addiction. I struggle with overworking. I struggle with all or nothing thoughts or catastrophizing thoughts. Paint your top of your tree. And as you look at your tree, that's gonna help you realize what might be the roots. So for example, use the thought records, the A, B, C, D, E, um, that you may have already written down some of your negative thoughts to see a common theme. So for example, I had a client where 
she filled out different stressors and the different thought records she journaled. And she realized she had a lot of conflict with people in the church, different types of people. She had a lot of conflict with her family. And so what's the theme here? People. <laughs> and she realized she had a core belief, people are untrustworthy. And it was rooted in her parents were immigrants. They immigrated here to the US and they taught her, you can't trust anybody, right? You gotta fend for yourself. People are gonna be out to get you. And so she had that lens with people at church, people in the world, people at work. She was single primarily because she couldn't trust men. So start looking for themes, the different things that stress you or that you're journaling um, about. Use the downward arrow technique, which I'll teach you in a little bit. Also reflect on the soil of your tree, the past experiences. So in that example, she started thinking about, okay, what in my childhood may have caused me to distrust people? So reflect on the soil, which we'll also talk about. So here's an example. You, this person struggles with overworking, other addictions. They struggle with kind of the perfectionism, complete all or nothing and should statements. They struggle with anxiety, depression, feeling overwhelmed. And the underlying core belief, I'm not good enough. The enough makes you feel like I need to constantly be working. That enough makes me think I should do this, I should do that. The enough is never feeling satisfied, so I always feel overwhelmed. Do you see how you can look at the top of the tree and start identifying what's feeding that tree? So here's an example of the downward arrow technique. You can take a thought, a negative thought that you have, and then you start basically peeling back the layers. Like it's an onion and you peel one, you peel. So basically you can ask yourself, if this is true, this thought is true, what does it mean about me? So the thought here is my boss doesn't think my report is good enough. Okay, that's a basic thought, it's a situation. But if that's true, if your boss really doesn't think your report is good, what does that mean about you? So you peel one layer back. If my boss asks me to revise reports, it means I'm not good at my job. But it's not about your job. If that's true, the underlying core belief is I'm incompetent. So you notice that the job situation, you're not stressing out because of the job, that's superficial. You're stressing out because the root of it is you are afraid that you're incompetent. Here's another example. I don't think Sarah likes me. So the situation, Sarah didn't invite me to her party. What are some alternative reasons that she didn't get invited? Too many people on her list. Okay, what other options? She knew she was probably working that day, or she could be working. Yeah, maybe she thought she was busy or had other plans or working, right? They're different. Couldn't find a babysitter, right? Yeah, they're different options. But she thinks, she jumps to a negative conclusion. I don't think Sarah likes me. What cognitive distortion is that? Mind reading. Does she know? Did Sarah tell that to her? She's thinking, I don't think Sarah likes me, which makes her feel sad. So you ask, you start peeling back the layers. Well, what's so bad about that? Whenever I get close to people, they end up disliking me. Okay, what does that say about me? I'll never have a close relationship. Do you see how we're peeling back layers? It's not just about Sarah not inviting her. At the root of it, she believes I'm unlikable. Right? That's why we react to these situations. So whenever you probably experience this, you're like, why am I so upset at the situation? It's because there's an underlying root. I remember when I was little, my mom, she would have us go and you know, pick out the weeds. And we as kids, I have two older siblings, we thought we were clever. We went out because we want to save time and we took some scissors and we just snip, 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 right? The surface, it looked great, right? But my mom, I don't know how much time passed, she knew. How did she know? They grew really back. They grew quickly, right? They grew back quickly. And that's what we often do. We just want to make the outside look good, but this is deeper work. Do you notice how often we would just start, stop there? I don't think Sarah likes me. We'd get upset. We'd get upset. We'd ruminate. And then we maybe go on our phones, do something else to distract ourselves, and we don't ever deal with it. 
then something else happens, and then Sarah does something else. But God is requiring us to do deeper work. This takes time. It does. So, step three, most importantly, go before the Lord in earnest prayer. You notice it didn't say prayer. Earnest prayer. If you, if you want to really make a change in your life, you need to ask God to reveal those roots to you. Psalms 139.23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He can help you uncover your negative core beliefs. And we'll come back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So once you've identified your core beliefs, now step two, you want to reflect on where do they come from? So take a moment, think about your childhood, your parents, the dynamics in your family. Um, let me give you an example of a common thing. Often people think, oh, I had a good childhood. Oh, there's nothing. I didn't have any abuse. I didn't have any... Well, it could be something as simple as you were compared to your older siblings constantly. Oh, why aren't you like so-and-so? Oh, well, so-and-so plays the violin. Well, so-and-so, you know, does this for church. And what do you think that, what type of core belief do you think that person might develop? I'm not good enough. Right, so a good family and even good-meaning parents may result in comparisons and that leads a person to feeling like they're just never good enough, right? Or if you have, you know, a, a sibling that's, you know, really beautiful physically, you might start having the core belief, I'm ugly, right? So comparisons. Other ones might be related to, let's say, sexual abuse. You had sexual abuse and you believe I'm dirty, right? No one will love me. So it's important to reflect on your childhood, your friends, but even media, media, then feeds our core beliefs, our negative core beliefs. How have they impacted my life? Right? If I'm thinking that I'm not good enough, for some people, what happens is they decide not to pursue anything. You say, oh, well, you know, yeah, I went to college, and I just didn't try. Other times, that could result in overachieving. How much do you believe each one on a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 being absolute confidence? That will tell you how strong that core belief is. And then step three, and we're going to spend some time in step three, because that's where you're really putting on your work boots. Disputation, disputing them, challenging them. It's not going to be easy because you've had these beliefs for years. But the word says, this is encouraging. So I had a, a client where she was maybe in her late 50s. She was a very well-known surgeon, top of her of, of surgery, and she had the belief, I'm not good enough. And that impacted her career drastically. Um, at first, it propelled her to do more and more and more and more. Then she had a surgery where it went wrong. And it was a common complication. And what, did, what do you think she thought? It's my fault. It's because I'm not good enough. And it was so traumatic that it, it threw her into a spiral of depression. And I remember her thinking, she's like, wow, I realized finally that I've had this. She had a highly critical father um, when she was a child. And she thought, well, Katie, I've, been, I've had this core belief for 50 plus years. She said, is it going to take 50 more years to change it? Now, I was like, that's an excellent question. Now, praise God, it doesn't take that long to change if we're willing to, you know, to collaborate with him. And the reason why is as children, our frontal lobes are not fully developed. So when somebody comes to you and says you're stupid as a child, you believe it, right? Because they don't have the ability to think for themselves. Now, as adults, we kind of just adopt that. Yeah, I'm stupid. But now you have the frontal lobe to say, no, I'm not stupid. So it doesn't take as long as an adult. Who here has heard of neuroplasticity? Okay, good. Many of you. Basically, the idea neuro meaning brain, plasticity meaning the ability to change you can rewire your brain. So if you told yourself for so many years, I'm stupid, you can start creating a new path, but it requires diligence and consistency. And the Bible says he can give us a new heart and that he can completely make you a new creation. I love this verse in application to core beliefs. Old things, even old core beliefs, have passed away. Behold, all things have become new new. Isn't that so encouraging? 
we read that verse so many times, but think about how that actually applies to your life. If you're doubting that God can make you a new person, it says, behold, some things have become new. All things have become new. Similar to thought work, we can challenge our core beliefs by first evaluating them. So remember what we talked about with thoughts, we can put our thoughts on trial. Put your core beliefs on trial. So if you think I'm stupid, what's the evidence that supports you're stupid? What's the evidence that doesn't support that you're stupid? Right? So challenge them, putting that belief on trial. So coming back to this, we're going to take a look at Satan's main lie. And not just his main lie, but it's the biggest barrier to redeeming the time. It's one of the biggest barriers that as Christians get in the way of us serving the Lord. And that's the core belief, I'm not good enough. Of all the core beliefs, this core belief is the most common core belief. So we're going to break it down. So often, this core belief results in people not doing at all, or they settle for just doing good, or they overdo. And that creates a lot of problems. Now let's first talk about the enough part. The I'm not good enough, what does that mean? What does enough mean? It's unmeasurable. It's like a moving target. The reason why this is one of Satan's biggest lies is because he knows that it's not measurable, so you never will feel good enough. I'm not smart enough. What does that mean? Where's the standard? Right? I'm not pretty enough. What's the standard? He knows that we're constantly searching for something that can't be satisfied. And then the I am part. What's wrong with I am stupid? What's the problem with that I am? Yes. Why? Because I am is a reflection of identity. You're saying that's who I am. Maybe you could reframe that to say, well, I'm not very good at studying. But that's something separate from me. I can work on that. But to say I am stupid, it's attaching it to your identity. So let's talk about identity and value. What determines value? Anyone? What do you think determines one's value? Work ethic. Work ethic. That's a good answer because we'll... We'll challenge that, but yes. What else? The highest bidder. The highest bidder? What do you mean by that? Okay, so it's dependent on others and what they would pay for. Okay. Okay, what determines self-worth? Our thoughts and beliefs, okay. So most times when we think about someone who has a lot of value, we depend it on what we do. So a physician, a physician has a lot of value, a lot of contribution to one's society, right? Somebody said work ethic. If I do more, I have more value, right? If I get good grades, right, I'm a valuable student. If I play so many instruments, I'm valuable to the church. If I do more ministry, I have more value, right? What we do often determines our value. So, for example, often we value a society, a lawyer, more than a postman. Is that true? Yeah. Now, if I were to say that that, that person is no longer going to deliver your Amazon packages, maybe you'll <laughs> reconsider that. But generally, we have this scale of value. Now, let me ask you this. Somebody who... Um, has been charged for murder and they're in prison, do they have value? No. <laughs> yes. Jesus died for everyone, okay. Most times we think, no, right? Look what they did. They don't, they're not, you know, a value contribution to, valuable contribution to society. But then if I change it and say, well, what if they're wrongfully convicted? And then I once asked this to a client, she said, well, they have value in their mother's eyes. They still have value regardless of what they do. Regardless. Now, from society's perspective, oh, let me jump to this real quick. Not only is it based off of what we do, but we often base our value on what other people say. So if other people say, I'm a good preacher, 
right? The, oh, then I feel more valuable. If other people, if my parents tell me, good job, then I feel like I have more value. We base our value on what we do and what other people say or think about us. And so, oh, if I'm in a relationship, then I feel as if I have more value. If church members, right, they, how they talk about me, then I have more value. But these things are problematic, and we'll talk about why. Now, from a secular perspective, when you start challenging this, people start saying, well, I guess the reason why we have value is because we're human. I had a client once say, whoever's breathing and alive, they have value. But what's problematic with this is evolution, right? It says it's what resulted in us being human. Evolution then teaches people that their value is only a little bit more valuable than that of a monkey. So if you really kind of, you know, peel back the layers, if you really think that your value is determined upon you just being a human being, this is what's problematic about the evolution theory. Because your origin determines your value. But we, as we believe in creation, we believe that the creation process resulted in us being human. Why is that so relevant? Yes. There's another aspect to this. God, as creator, created me. And not only did he create me, but he created me personally, right? God formed Adam. And there are many verses that said, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So if we think, as a human being, I depend my value on what other people say, that's problematic because what other people say is constantly changing. What other people think about you will constantly change. You can't depend, even your, your, your parents or people you highly value, they will constantly change. Their opinion will constantly change. But God changes not. And not only does he form us, but another aspect to this is that he redeems us. You just went up in value. Not only does he create you, the God of the universe created you, but he also redeemed you. He bought you back. So we see like, oh, we have different beliefs about evolution or creation, but at the heart of it all is your identity, is your self-worth. But many times we forget about this. We don't reflect on God creating me, of knowing me in my mother's womb. And so we lose sight of our value. And then what happens? Culture, over time, starts taking you back to, oh, what other people think, what you do. Social media, a lot of it is, oh, if you do more, if you post things, you, oh, then I get more likes, then I feel more valuable. Do you see why kids are struggling so much with identity these days? Right? Not, and I don't just mean sexual identity or gender identity, but identity in general. Um, they did a survey and they asked kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And before, it used to be firefighter, policeman, all these helping professionals. Now they want to be social influencers. Why? Because they lack identity and they want to be, have a voice. They want to have a position because they think that that's what will find uh, value and uh, worth. But we see that our value and our worth is dependent on God because... You may have other people's opinions change. Your job may change. So I have a lot of people who come to therapy when they retire. Why? It's because they put all of their worth in their job. Oh, you, how are you? Oh, you know, my name is Katie. What, what do you do for a living? It's immediately what we ask. I am a psychologist. It's an identity. The moment that I retire or something happens, I lose that identity. It's unstable. So we need to then form our identity and anchor our identity in God. So God is what determines our value because God changes not. And what's fascinating is that then as we put God as the creator of our value, then we actually do more than what we were trying. If we try to do in order to have more value, we always fail. But we will do more and then we will influence others instead of allowing others to influence us. It's like the verse that talks about to diffuse your fragrance, right? You'll become a sweet fragrance to other people 
if you truly have your identity centered in God. So essentially, um, oh, let me read this quote first. Many who are qualified to do excellent work accomplish a little because they attempt little. So that's kind of a behavior. But what's the root of it? Thousands pass through life as if they had no great object for which to live, no meaning in life, no high standard to reach. One reason of this is the low estimate which they place upon themselves. They have low self-value. But the, the quote continues. She says, Christ paid an infinite price for us. She's highlighting the act of redemption. And according to the price paid, he desires us to value ourselves. What's so beautiful is that it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It's saying you could do very little. You could do the worst, and yet you still have value. Why? Because it's not dependent on what you do. It's dependent on who Christ is and what he has done for us. So essentially, what we are talking about is Christ our righteousness. If I could teach my clients only one thing that would be extremely healing is Christ our righteousness. And yet we, as a people, we, we read about it, we talk about it, but we don't actually internalize it, what it means for us. Christ, God created us, we straight away, we have lost a sense of identity and value, but he came to live a life of suffering and perfection in order for us to put on, right? Put off your old self, but put on the righteousness of Christ. So we start forming our identity in Christ, in Christ alone, because he is the same. Hebrews 13 says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you want to have good, stable value? Center it in Christ. Center it in Christ. So you start thinking about, well, what are the core beliefs that I want to then establish in my life? Explore what are those new core beliefs. And then you start adopting them. Give your old negative core beliefs to God, saying, God, I have believed about myself that I'm not good enough. I have believed that the world is a dangerous place. I have believed that you are unforgiving. Bring them to God and then start adopting new beliefs and allow them to be rooted in truth. Be defined by his truth. It's kind of like, God, give me your sunglasses. Right? Let me have your eyes to see not only other people. We pray about other people. Help me see them through your eyes. Help me see myself through your eyes, right? So this is not a fake it until you make it. Um, secular psychology, what it's selling is positive affirmations and positive affirmations alone. There's nothing wrong with affirmations, but standing in the mirror and saying, you are beautiful, you are beautiful, you are beautiful. What's, what's problematic about that? Pride. Pride, okay, you can go to another extreme. Can you really believe yourself? No. Right? We deceive ourselves all the time. And so part of you, you could say you're beautiful, you're beautiful, but the back of your mind, you're not going to believe it. So it may stick for a little bit, but it doesn't have long-lasting change. Yes? I say don't fake it till you make it, but act in the fact. Yes. He said don't fake it till you make it, but act in the fact. Yes. So it's not fake it until you make it. Instead, it's choosing to believe the truth, Eunice, it's capital T, meaning believing God that does not and cannot lie. Right? Isn't that wonderful that God cannot lie? We all lie, right? And so if somebody tells me, oh, you're beautiful. How do I really trust them? But if God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made and he does not lie, he cannot lie. Lessons by, um, on faith, the book, talks about like, you know, if he were to say there's a chair there, the chair would appear because God cannot lie. And that never changes. He never changes. I love this quote. It's a longer quote, but it talks about how you can use scripture to help change your core beliefs. It says, we should take one verse and concentrate the mind on the task of ascertaining the thought or the core belief, which God has put in that verse for us. 
We should dwell upon the thought until it becomes our own, until God's beliefs about us become our own core belief and how we view ourselves. The beliefs about us becomes our own. Oh, I just read that. The experiences related in God's word are to be my experiences. Prayer and promise, precept and warning are mine. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So how I view myself is then how I view Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse alone can help you change your core beliefs. Maybe I don't think I'm good enough, but Christ in me, right, he is good. As faith thus receives and assimilates the principles of truth, they become a part of the being and the motive power of the life. The word of God received into the soul molds the thoughts and enters into the development of character, into the development of new accurate core beliefs. But many times we read the Bible really quickly, we read big, large passages, but we don't dwell on one verse and repeating it until that verse becomes our own realities. If you forget everything about today's presentation, I hope that you can start at least adopting this practice, saying, God, I think that I'm worthless. But in this verse, let's do a little exercise. What are some verses about value, God's word, that shows you that you have value? John 3.16, how does that show value? Yes, and he died because it starts with he loves us. He loves you, right? What else? Yes, right? He's graven us on the palms of it. It's personal. What else? Okay, I heard two at the same time. Let's hear you first, then we'll go in the back. All the hairs on your head are numbered. That one means a lot to me because I have a lot of hair. <laughs> that means he knows every single part of me. And what's so beautiful is they say what we want most in life is to be fully known and fully loved. If he fully knows me, so you put those two verses together, right? He knows my hairs and he died for me because he loves me. He fully knows me and fully loves me. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, in the back. Yes. Yes, definitely. Before we did anything, before we try to, you know, basically uh, righteousness by works, we're trying to gain his pleasure. He loved us before we were in there. Yes. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Mm, I have called you by your name. You are mine. Right? That's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Other verses? I encourage you to go home and say, God, if I have this one belief, how do I challenge it with the words that you have spoken to me? What's beautiful is that we can, if somebody says, oh, I'm not that pretty, we can encourage them, right? And they can tell us, but we often treat God as if like he doesn't talk to us. But God has put words in his Bible for us personally, love messages to us. So accept God's provision of, now, okay, so this is another step, not only using God's word, but God often sends people or experiences to change your core beliefs. So for example, if you think I'm not good enough and God's like, you're good enough, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, can you lead out um, prayer ministry? You're like, me? But I'm not good enough. God sometimes sends experiences that maybe with, you don't fully believe it, but you act in faith. And then as you do it, you realize, wow, I am good enough in Christ. So an example of that's Moses. Moses is like, no, but I'm slow to speak. No, 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 no. He accepted. And what do we hear about him later on in his career? Was he that same weak and timid man? He's one of the greatest leaders. So maybe we don't initially believe it, but accept God's provision in different experiences. You had a comment. Mm. Yes, he was saying, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. God is 
not only wanting a relationship, but he is persistent in pursuing us. Yes. Yes, yes, he didn't come to condemn us, but to give us life. Sometimes people come along, certain relationships or people to, to encourage us, and sometimes we easily dismiss that, but God is going to send you experiences and people to change those core beliefs. So 2 Samuel chapter 9 talks about the story of Mephibosheth, and with that story, I'm not going to go into all the details, but you can tell he has negative core beliefs. He says, I'm a dead dog. His name itself, Mephibosheth, means uh, someone of shame. And he viewed himself as lame, right? As not good, as not valuable. And it is through David's kindness that restores him and has him believe new things that he has value. So allow people to help you. Allow people to encourage you. And then the step four Act in faith. Expose yourself to new and uncomfortable experiences. We don't like that word, right? But growth happens in the stage of discomfort. So if you want to really change your core beliefs, let, let's say, you know, you say, I'm, un, un, I'm unlovable. But then there is an experience that you can engage in a new friendship, right? Act in faith. Expose yourself to those new experiences or go to places. You think, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough or I'm invaluable. I don't want to go to that social event. Go, expose yourself or maybe volunteer for certain experiences. Experiences that can help solidify that new belief. What we behold, we become changed. This is a principle um, in psychology we call, we have mirror neurons. Basically, monkey see, monkey do, that phrase is what you do over time can shape who you are. So maybe you don't really believe um, a truth about yourself, but by beholding, we become changed. So do act in faith. So we see this tree here again, but as we start to change it, we see here a new tree, and we are going to plant a new tree. I am good enough, which then instead of overworking, there's going to be more balance in your life. You're going to live a more value congruent life. Instead of having all-or-nothing thoughts, you're going to start seeing things as partial successes. You're going to find grace in the gray. You're going to realize instead of should statements, you have a choice. And instead of feeling overwhelmed, anxious, or depressed, you're going to start feeling a sense of contentment, satisfaction, and joy. Planting a new tree. Now you say, okay, I have a new tree. Now what? Does that mean I stop exercising? I start picking up my phone again, start engaging in those addictions? No. You must maintain the new tree, right? Now, most of us, we're like, okay, I'm going to start believing I'm good enough, I'm good enough. But we don't maintain and fertilize the new tree. So what does the maintenance stage look like? This is what the maintenance stage looks like. So the, we'll start at the bottom. The soil is your home environment. So before... As a child, you didn't have control over that, right? So maybe your parents told you, oh, you're so stupid. And over time, that soil caused a deterioration and have a, a, a negative tree to grow. But now, as adults, you have a choice. So the question first becomes to maintain a good tree is what are your social relationships? What are the people? Who are the people in your life? So let me give you an example of this. I don't know a lot about gardening, but what I found fascinating was that depending on the trees that surround you or the plants that surround you, it changes the pH of the soil. So how that applies to core beliefs is you might say, okay, God, I'm going to believe I'm good enough, but I'm choosing to surround myself by people that are toxic, by relationships that, are, that downgrade you or demean you. Are you going to be able to maintain that new belief? Now, I don't want to go to extremes. Some people say, okay, I'm going to cut out my mother-in-law. I'm going to cut out, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean that. But what it means is boundaries. Now, I could do maybe a four-part series just on boundaries. People struggle with setting boundaries. There's a book called Boundaries by Dr. Doctors Henry Cloud and Townsend, and I encourage you to read it. I was going to say if you struggle with boundaries, but majority of you struggle with boundaries, so read it, all of you. 
Um, but without boundaries, you're going to let people into your life, or you know maybe you can't exclude them, but you're going to allow them to have more influence in your life that then will lead you back to having that negative core belief. So choose your home environment. Who are your closest relationships? If you struggle with boundaries, set those boundaries, and that will help you maintain your core belief. But then it's not just that. You don't just have great soil. You need to have fertilizer. So ongoing habits. Am I exercising? Am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Without that, that can also ruin the new tree. Now you notice that with current circumstances, can you control the weather? If you said yes, I'd be a little concerned. <laughs> you can't. Can you control everything that happens to you in your life? No. no. Oftentimes, we put a lot of energy in trying to control our situations. We're trying to control the weather instead of controlling what's in my control. So don't focus on what happens. A trial comes, you're like, why? No. Everything works together for the good of those who love God and called according to his purpose. So you need to focus then on what you can do in your day-to-day -to, -day to manage those stressors. And then you notice coping skills. You don't need gardening um, tools all the time. So you don't need to use certain coping skills all the time. But you might say once in a while, if I'm feeling extra discouraged, I might need to do something additional, right? You have ongoing habits, but you may need different skills at different times. And it's important to maintain this new tree because remember in a great controversy, Satan is going to try to destroy this new tree. So to close, in our last couple minutes together, I wanted us to read a story about somebody who God changed her core beliefs. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to the story of the hemorrhaging woman. Mark chapter 5. And again, I loved reading God's word from a mental health perspective. Often we read this story only from a physical health perspective, but let's pick up in verse 25. Now, just a side comment, Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And I love this because it's like, okay, if you're watching a movie, it's like, okay, he's going to go heal her. And then it's like, pause scene, enter in a new character. Jesus was never busy to the point where he didn't follow God's leading with a divine appointment. He stopped what he was doing. And it says in verse 25, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Is that a long time or a short time? A long time. A constant flow of blood. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that, but imagine constant bleeding. And now, it doesn't give you all the details, but even think about the culture of that time where it would ostracize women if they were on their menstrual cycles. So not only is it describing that she had this physical ailment, but she would have been ostracized, right? She would have been labeled as unclean, maybe have a core belief, I am unclean. And she was a woman. So this is painting a very bad picture, a bad life for her. But it continues. Not only did she have this flow, verse 26, and had suffered some things, many things, and now this is where it gets really sad, from many physicians, from the very people that are supposed to help her, it's kind of in some ways in a form of abuse, suffering things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So again, this is painting a woman that is physically suffering, mentally and emotionally suffering, financially suffering, socially suffering, a lot of shame, and yet we see what happens next. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, it's easy sometimes when we have negative core beliefs and we view ourselves negatively to just give up. She could have easily said, oh, no, I'm not going to go out in public. I'm not going to, you know, people have ostracized me. I'm not going to. But she was persistent. She heard about Jesus and came behind him and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Verse 29 says, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of affliction. End of story. 
No. What's really fascinating is we see that she was healed here, right? It says immediately. But, now we're going to jump a few verses. Verse 34, Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Did anyone catch that? Why is Jesus saying that she should be healed? Wasn't she already healed? But there's a difference. In verse 29, she was healed physically. But in verse 34, the word of healing, of made you well, is disozo. And this type of healing is a holistic healing, a physical, a social, emotional, a spiritual healing. So the question is, what happened that led to this holistic healing, a core belief, deeper roots that she had? So let's go back. Verse 30 says, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. This is her humbling herself. For your core beliefs, you need to come before God, fall down on your knees, and it says and told him the whole truth. And in Luke, it says, in the presence of all, she told the whole truth. There's an element of vulnerability that is required for healing. It's not until she admitted she needed healing, it wasn't until she said her testimony in the presence of all, until, verse 34, therefore, daughter, your faith has made you well whole, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman, the pain that she had, not just the physical, but the core beliefs that she had, the shame, was all healed in that moment by an encounter with Jesus, a vulnerability, of uh, confession. And that's what we need in our lives with core beliefs, coming before God. And I want to close with this, um, this quote, powerful quote. It says, the divine power combined with human effort will give to all perfect and entire victory. Every believing mind will be filled with conscious power. The language of the soul will be, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. But you notice there, it's a combination. Often we're saying, God, why aren't you healing me? God, I've been struggling for so long. It's divine power combined with human effort. You have learned many things in the last four, four parts, four sessions. And it's going to require human effort. It's going to require, but human effort combined with divine power. Therefore, we would be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we'll close with a couple of the re- reflection questions. How do negative core beliefs and poor self-worth or value impact your life? How does it impact the church at large? If we're all, you know, struggling with our value, how does that impact the church? Who are the people closest to you in your home environment that are potentially feeding your core beliefs? How are my words and my actions impacting or shaping other people's core beliefs? Of my children? of my fellow church members, or others in my sphere of influence? And then, what is one core belief that you want to surrender to God right now? So let's kind of stay on that last question for a moment. If there's something that God has convicted you of or shown you, as we pray, I want you to, in the quietness of your own mind, to surrender that belief or beliefs to God. Let's close with a prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, We are like this hemorrhaging woman. We're broken, we're suffering, we're in pain. And it's easy to stay smiling on the outside, but be in pain in the inside. And you know that pain, but we want to be like her and to come to you, to be determined and to touch you, God, and to receive that holistic healing that you desire for us. But God, we know that it requires us to go to you. It requires us to pursue you. But divine power combined with our effort, we know that you can give us entire and complete victory. So God, right now, 
If you've convicted anyone in this room um, or that will listen later of a core belief or beliefs that they've believed from the enemy, the lies of the enemy, I pray that they can surrender that over to you and instead see and believe the core beliefs the way that you view us, that you view us as a God of truth. May our identities be formed and anchored in you and in your righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.